Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. It was a busy week of interviewing and the weekend is absolutely spectacular. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good, man. Have a, a weekend full of uh, physical activity, so I'm just living living life right now. I was going to say, yeah, I actually went on a 10-mile hike with uh, Tyler Pence the other day, and it was, a, it was a pretty good time. Wonderful. Where, in San Francisco? Yeah, it was in, like, very, very far south in a place called Morgan Hill, but very beautiful, very green. Oh, yeah, I've always wanted to ride my bike there. That's where Specialized makes their bikes. Anyways. We recorded this uh, podcast with Stephen Mackey forever ago, about like a week ago. Uh, Stephen runs his own podcast called Block Channel, which is also an article publication. Uh, and then he also just has his fingers in so many different things. Uh, Stephen has pulled himself up by the bootstraps in the cryptocurrency world to be kind of just his own force uh, for just advising and and just understanding the space at large. Uh, and so we get his perspective as to what that was like. Uh, and then we also go into what what he calls like emergent communities and emergent governance and how these different blockchains kind of select for these similar people. Um, talking about like how Bitcoin tends to be conservative, Ethereum tends to be uh, liberal, uh, and then a bunch of other characteristics as well. Uh, and then we end up talking a little bit about Yang Gang. Uh, so if you guys are into Yang Gang, stay, stick around for the end. We talk about that at the very end. Uh, Steven's just a great storyteller. Uh, and so he, he he really just made our work just super easy and just, you know, basically created our podcast episode for us. So hats off to him for, for doing that. Yeah, man, I had a ton of fun on this interview. And, you know, it's obvious that Steven makes a lot of content because he just, you know, knows how to conduct himself on a podcast. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with everything that, you know, Steven talked about Shocker. in terms of like, you know, governance and um, why certain things will succeed versus something else. But I definitely very, very much respect his take. And, you know, I thought I learned a lot um, in general, and I definitely can see, um, you know, why why he thinks the way he does. But um, I the reason why I respect his take so much is because Steven actually has a ton of experience in Bitcoin, as well as in Ethereum and in a lot of other different um, protocols, dApps, and ideas. So, um, you know, if anyone has a kind of like really legitimate and experience-based um, opinion uh, for one way or another, I think he qualifies as that. And um, I'm really glad we had him on the show. or ethereum or eos you know he he loves crypto he loves the uh, the potential for social change but he i don't think he would say that he's tied down to any one particular blockchain right like he's here to work in cryptocurrency and people like that are super valuable uh, we need more agnostic creators in this space just to uh you know kind of have some fair balance and perspective that you know i don't think christian or i could provide speaking of not providing a fair perspective Bitcoin 2019, where you can come to the best Bitcoin conference of the year in San Francisco at the end of June. Tickets are now 150 bucks, so you missed out on the $100 tickets, but POV 15 is still live for 25% off. Make sure to get your tickets quick before prices go up again. And without further ado, Stephen Mackey. All right, guys, we are here with Stephen Mackey. Stephen, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Excited to be on board. 
Steven, you do a ton of different things uh, in the cryptocurrency space. How do you like view your work? Like you, you have. We'll get into the details of everything you do, but like, what yeah. is your like uh, modus operandi, right? Like, what do you hear in crypto to do? Yeah, most definitely. All right, so I've, I've probably kind of like given this spiel quite a few times, but you know, when I originally got into crypto back in late 2012, I was a sophomore junior uh, in in college. And I was studying um, CS and uh, a little bit of journalism and like creative writing, actually, um, because like I really was always a fan of writing and was really, really good at it. And but also was really technical, uh, love numbers, love computers, all that stuff. So when I fell into crypto in late 2012, it was more so as a means to an end when I had discovered it online, um, coming from a less well, kind of a very, very low income background. Uh, and like poverty. So like at the time I was a first generation college student still putting myself through college. Um, and so, you know, I saw an opportunity to one like self-actualize and to be a little bit more uh, self-proficient in ways like historically, like my family generationally wasn't. And also I saw it as an opportunity to use my newfound intelligence that I garnered from, you know, being a first generation college student to create real like multi-generational wealth you know, to take your, basically take your family surname from zero to one. Um, and so what I initially sought out to do was, I, one, I wanted to learn everything because I've always just been a beast that just loves like complexity. Um, and I also love it when things are complex and, and the information is hard to find and hard to get. I just, I love the concept of being a subject matter expert on things. So when I got into crypto, what I wanted to do was garner as much information as I can, learn about this thing that seemed to be so innately complex and have all these different moving parts and think of how can I interject myself to uh, provide value in this nascent industry that I think is going to be like a part of the future. And at the same time, can I do it sensibly and provide myself like a sustainable, you know, source of income along the way? As it turns out, very much the case. Um, so, you know, my grand vision for crypto is to basically self-actualize like these systems actually adhere to the original like ethos and pathos that we have like endured over the years and kind of make sure that narrative is the one that comes to fruition. So, you know, decentralized open finance, um, having lowering the barrier of interest to emerging markets, making it so individuals can have capital allocated to them where it is needed to most, um, providing the means for individuals that uh, don't necessarily have the capability to get access to, to capital or to like generalized opportunities that other people can't, can finally do so. Um, and so doing that has a lot of moving parts that you learn throughout the year. So what it has been is learning all that we will need to get there and actualize on that vision. And at the same time, build the partnerships and sustain myself until that actually happens. So can you walk us through your progression in your career in cryptocurrency and, and how you've kind of worked towards that vision of self-actualization? Most definitely. I think I think before like, you know, just spouting about accolades and saying specifically what it is I've done in the space, it probably makes sense to first quickly say why even what I'm doing here is even interesting or important to me in the first place. And that's mostly because before crypto, when I discovered it, when I was like, you know, 22 or so, uh, I had worked all sorts of odds and end jobs, right? As like a first generation college kid. 
I, uh, you know, started working when I was 16, 17 as a cashier at a grocery store. And then that evolved into me doing like DJing on the weekends and learning about equipment. And then I started burning mixed CDs for people at McDonald's in order to flip those in order so I could actually eat because me and my friends are on the streets because we both had like poor parents and like bad home environments. So we just, me and my, one of my best friends, Thomas, we just flipped and sold CDs on the streets so we could feed ourselves while we were DJing. And then, you know, that evolved further and I got, ended up getting uh, another job doing landscaping so I could save up money before I could go to college for textbooks. And then after working an entire summer only to save up a thousand dollars and then, get, and then spending all of that and then still needing more the first semester for college textbooks, I very quickly realized that I was going to get screwed over just trying to like put my, push myself forward. And so, you know, I was like, well, looks like I can't have college textbooks, but, but I still need to be able to feed myself. So you know, I was an IT administrator for a little while. I did. I was a web development intern for a little bit, paid because I knew my worth. Uh, I worked at Apple as a genius. I worked as a store team lead at Urban Outfitters at a large flagship store. I've even sold shoes to Kendrick Lamar. Um, I literally have done it all, man. I've hustled. I've done some unsavory things that are that don't bear repeating on on podcasts, and I did that all because as a means to an end to know where I was going to go. So fast forward to getting that my pass to the middle class when I graduated college in 2014, I had already had two crypto interviews under my belt. I had interviewed for Coinbase and I made it through their entire technical interview process, which at the time it was mostly a Ruby stack. But I didn't end up getting the job. And I also applied for Circle at the time in 2014. And they flew me all the way to Boston for their first like, you know, customer support engineering position as they were kind of like ramping up just in general. And uh, I didn't end up getting that gig either. So I was kind of mad. And, but I did end up getting a job uh, working uh, uh, for the uh, company BitReserve, which is now called Uphold today. Um, as at the time, the, response, the, the title was Rapid Response Contributor, but really that was a combination of like technical product marketing, responding back to them with some of the legal and regulatory questions about like hub and spoke and like which ways to like really regulate crypto from like the UK treasury, which was like kind of one of my main tasks. It was a contract based job. And then um, really like doing some ghostwriting for the, uh, uh, the CEO and the uh, head of marketing at the time, Caitlin Looney. Uh, and then the CEO um, was it Halsey Miner, who was the creator of CNET. And so it was like my first job after I had my college degree. And I was like, oh man, I, they, were just, they asked me how much money I wanted to get paid. And I told them $135 an hour. And they said, yes. And I was like, oh shit, there's really something to this crypto thing. So, you know, after working at Uphold, I also got a gig. Uh, you know, I helped Ryan Charles with yours and then uh, yours.org, the first micropayment, you know, social network for crypto after he, you know, fell off from working at Reddit and um, had some disagreements there from like a founding perspective, credit, credit, you know, perspective, and then ended up parting ways uh, and ended up working at Purse for about two years as the head of uh, growth engineering and product content. And then somewhere along those lines, um, I started advising a bunch of companies, Spank Chain, Scent, uh, Zastrin, uh, CryptoPets, uh, Cypher Browser. We actually sold Cypher Browser to Coinbase, uh, which is now Coinbase Wallet. So if you use Coinbase Wallet, you're welcome. Um, and now Pete Kim, the creator of Cypher Browser, who was, who was the 98% share owner of the company, thank you. Uh, he's now the head of wallet engineering and engineering at Coinbase. Um, and then in late 2018, or actually late 2017, I announced that we were starting a fund prior to its legal structuring, because those are kind of how the rules work. Um, and, uh, and then I didn't, then we formally began fundraising in January of 2018, 
started deploying funds in April and we've been having so much fun in the bear market because you can make money when, you know, prices go up and down. And we've sort of solidified ourselves, I feel, like one of the top five or 10 funds for crypto in the world. Uh, and, you know, and since then, we've done a hell of a lot of different investing from investing in alongside Fidelity, Coinbase Ventures, Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia, Cap Sequoia Capital, like you name a big wig in the Silicon Valley, we've probably like cut a check next to them and just, just since April of 2018. Um, and on top of that, we, you know, endure advisory. So a lot of our work, a lot of my work and lead up to crypto came from like my need of always trying to hustle to the next best thing, you know, go from $6 and 85 cents an hour to $7 and 25 cents an hour to $10 an hour to $14 an hour to $135 an hour to what I make in crypto now. So every time it was like, how do I compound and make the next big jump in wealth earnings so I can make myself more comfortable? And every time I was moving a little bit further, that number to make me feel comfortable kept going up uh, as I surrounded myself with individuals of higher net worth and uh, what I, who I felt you know, far more skilled than I. But as I quickly learned, it's all a facade. But so for me, it's just been a lot of building through learning and growing and literally growing from being a jack of all, jack of all trades out of necessity to being like a master or an intermediate of a lot of things out of the need to like sustain the businesses that we built. So that's just an absolutely crazy trajectory of a career path. Can you also kind of walk us through uh, your skill set that developed over time? Because it sounded like you kind of started as an entry-level position, and then you ended up as a, a manager of a fund. Yeah, so I got my first computer when I was about eight. Uh, it was a gateway desktop, so a little bit of background. My dad is a career cocaine marijuana dealer, uh, and then my mom was a career like waitress at like you know Shoney's and Waffle House, if we ever had Waffle House. Great place. Um, and so like, you know, myself in particular, when my dad bought this gateway all-in-one computer to show off to all of his, you know, druggy friends, uh, when they would come by and pick up from him, even though he didn't know how to use the damn thing, even till today, um, like he basically was just like, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, this is my son. He's playing around on his computer. And so I started doing that all the time, just playing around on the computer in the living room, getting obsessed over it, breaking things. This was back when we had a, uh, you know, AOL dial-up. And so just on there, deleting files, not knowing what the hell I'm doing, dicking around online, getting on websites, getting into trouble, you know, just trying to learn how all these things work, uh, playing around with like light, like scripting, programming, things like that. I played this online game, um, building like online Sprite assets and selling them for digital, uh, for digital money called dimes at the time. Um, this was back probably when I was like 11 or 12. And then, so I've always been a part of online communities, uh, whether it's things like Reddit, Things like, I don't know, playing games like Neopets, playing things like I have been there through at least through like the late 90s and early 2000s through like all those major jumps. So me being a nerd, that's just, I mean, fast forward, me being on a computer for 10 years. I've done a little bit of all of, all of it. And so I went, went through high school. I did, went to vocational school um, for part of the day, which was like an advanced program for our school for computer networking. Um, and then when I left, I was a guy, I just love computers. It just makes perfect sense to just, you know, major in computer science, right? It's just like you've been dicking around with computers your whole life. It just like kind of makes sense. But then you learn more about what computer science is and it's not just programming, da da da, da and it's fun. And then at the same time, uh, writing code was one thing, understanding like architecture and the math was another, but writing was something I still really enjoyed. So creative writing and journalism was what I wanted to hone in on. But once I got into crypto and I learned about 
how multidisciplinary is and all the moving parts, I understood that I didn't need to be able to just do the one hard skill of like programming or like optimizing one particular thing for some like company that's ultimately going to like make profit off of this like line of code that may or may not ever see in the hands of a consumer. Cause like I was a nerd, but I like to think at the same time, I was always aspiring to be a cool nerd. And I just didn't want to be one of those back of the room dudes with like, you know, balding receding hairline, you know, with like, like 30 stuff on his t-shirt programming in a basement all day. That was what I imagined because, you know, I come from a low income mixed race family. And that was my, that was my idea of what a computer scientist was just a straight up nerd. And so I was like, okay, well, I don't want to do that. When I learned about Bitcoin, I was like, I'm really good at leading and talking. And I was the leader of the Native American Intertribal Association, which I started at my school because I'm mixed race, also part Native American. And I was a um, uh, president of the community council. And I just sort of fell into like my extroverted side. And I was just like, man, I was like building, digging around on computers, staring at things for hours autistically. Got that down. That's easy. And I was like, you put me in front of a hard topic for a few hours and like, you know, leave me alone. I'm going to absorb it and digest. It. That's easy. I can learn a skill in a week if I need it. Right. And I was like, but the system side of thing is what's where it's really powerful. So when I switched over to information systems and generally like systems engineering, it allowed me to take all that technical expertise, my ability to be able to write and communicate and be able to build an architect and manage the stakeholders and understand the business you know, requirements in order to like make something sustainable, something that allows someone to go to your work and dick around on a computer all day and to take home a paycheck to feed his family. You know, I saw myself as not wanting to be another peon or another like widget in this, you know, machine. You know, I wanted to be the one making the machine, um, but all of it. And I wanted to sell the machine too. And I wanted to be on the other end to watch the person use it, you know? So, you know, growing up completely in, in the woods, um, being really poor with nothing but my computer, the only time I got to see two ne new technology was when it came in the mail in the form of like a Best Buy catalog. So a lot of my eight to 12 years old was a lot of just kind of using my imagination on where things would, would go. And, you know, and so that was always really exciting for me. And so being at the forefront and being able to help architect and bring to fruition new technologies and systems had a lot more long-term value to me than to just be someone who is a deep, deep specialized subject matter expert on like, you know, flipping bits. Um, and not that I don't have a deep, deep understanding and don't have experience doing those things. It's just that it's not something that, for instance, like one of my really good friends, Olalu Asuntukun, who's one of the creators of Lightning and one of the advisors to our fund, he loves that stuff. You know, we got to pull him away from work even on the weekends just to hang out and play Super Smash Brothers. And it's like, I get that. And there's people that love that stuff but for me, it's all, it was all about the bigger picture and micromanaging the technical aspects in order to get to that vision. So, I mean, again, uh, Steven, really interesting, fantastic story and really incredible kind of being able to pull yourself up from your bootstraps and, and get to where you are today. Um, I know, you know, just, you know, relating back to myself, I've really had a uh, very kind of like middle class, easy um, existence through college and all of that. So, you know, when I see people who have, you know, gone so far uh, with kind of like so little foundation, um, it just really inspires me personally. But something that you mentioned that we talk about a lot on this show is how crypto, Bitcoin, blockchain um, really kind of forces you to think like a polymath because it is 
so interdisciplinary and so many aspects um, of these like hyper specialized worlds are all are colliding at the same time. And I feel like you are a, a very good example of kind of, you know, this and like the new breed of kind of entrepreneur, uh, you know, that's emerging. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit about that a little bit more deeply? And, you know, do you see other people that are like multidisciplinary like this? And, you know, how's that kind of evolving? Yeah, most definitely. So, I mean, just generally in the, you know, the Bay Area, you can kind of see it right now. So there's always been this uh, concept of like the mythical founder, the one that can kind of do it all. There's the combination CEO, CTO model. But then there's this concept of this unicorn megalomaniacal like technical genius that also has deep business acumen and can kind of like operate on all levels, a master generalist, so to speak. And when, you know, Andreessen Horowitz started their fund back in the day, uh, you know, kind of one of their original theses was like finding those megalomaniacal founders that are just going to be super honed in on an idea and just really execute on it. And that was kind of speaking to the need that there needed to be someone that understood the generality of like building a business and all the moving parts to it, but also be able to interject and go in hands on and be the perfectionist to say, hey, this isn't how it should be. This should be like this. This should look like this. This code should run like this. This product should feel like this because ultimately end of the day, their shareholders benefit, but it all, all the success falls back on the CEO. So now we've moved to crypto where we sort of disintermediated a lot of the general concept of what is a business entity as we moved into protocols and we got a lot of moving parts now we have you know the decentralized protocol itself all of its clients um the peer-to-peer network of individuals spending on it the miners and self that sustain that system uh the business and operational people that sustain those mining businesses the developers project technical project managers and community managers that help sustain the protocols themselves basically it's all these moving parts happening all the time in order to like maintain this commons. And, you know, where in previously a really successful business has this sort of like, you know, master generalist at the helm, everyone kind of plays the role as the master generalist CEO when it comes to crypto, because you always have to consider if you pull this lever, what will happen? If we make this, you know, low level technical improvement, this affects scalability, but what are the second order implications? If we introduce this particular option in this, crypto economic game or mechanism, is it still Byzantine fault tolerant? Is, uh, it, do the economics of this of this token still make sense? Can we have value capture? Da, 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 da. Does this produce an outsized economy of scale where an individual can use that to their advantage or will this eventually like devolve into an oligopolistic or cartel-like environment? These are things you have to worry about. And so in order to do that intelligently, obviously you need a lot of very smart people. And so, Kind of like that's kind of was the major foundational starting point of crypto was there were these people that had to, whether or not they realized it or not, had all this very deep, low level understanding of all these different disciplines, like the cypherpunks that, you know, we're all against like, you know, governmental capture. They're very libertarian in nature. We want small government. We want to be able to build things. We can build systems that are in software and money that is sovereign and we can take care of ourselves. And so those people are already thinking in a very big way. And so they really set the stage and the ethos for the intellectual minds that came behind it. For instance, like Vitalik takes a very, 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 very big complex idea to pull someone like Vitalik and all of his IQ and you know capability away from World of Warcraft 
just to get building on these things, you know? And, and a lot of us included, there's a lot of World of Warcraft folks in here. But it, regardless, a lot of it was like, we've been playing around on the internet since we, since, you know, outside the cyberpunks, for instance, let's say the folks like between the ages of 25 and 32, you know, we've been playing around on the internet since like late 95. Uh, and we've been on with, on, we've been on every online community. We've been there. We were there with the launch of Halo. We were there for Neopets. We were there for RuneScape. We were there for, we bounced around from every major economy that had each, all sorts of different incentive mechanisms. So what happened is, you know, a lot of these uh, individuals sort of, they reached adulthood and they were like, where do we find the same level of like camaraderie and interoperable systems and like this sort of community that we have that we've had online and we found that all in crypto and i think a lot of us don't realize that and um you know for me i had an article that went out in like market watch so so a lot of us like in like in market watch in 2017 they covered me in there and and in there you know holy shit i referenced I that you know it's it's this place draws in individuals that are just you know enamored with the concept of complexity but also just kind of working together for like this common goal that feels good uh, and, you know, the reward mechanism of using your skills to, like, pwn someone on, a, you know, an online game to, you know, get the next, like, you know, dope loop set, the next new tier item, the next da-da-da-da-da, that was your drive. That was your incentive. And now for us, it's like, hey, we can't hang out digitally online in our games and our heads anymore. We're in the real world. And, you know, how do we use these skill sets that we've matured online without even realizing it to make the real world the place that has the games and the good stuff that keeps us going and want us to be our best character, our best version, our best, you know, uh, like re-rolling the character that is like the person in the real world to ensure that we have all the resources to be a successful guild, right? <laughs> it's the same thing. Uh, and now we see it on a grand global scale and we see the potential for international global governments, you know, internationally interoperably connected financial systems. That's the, hey man, if, if we're aiming for a high, you know, a high, uh, high score, uh, connecting everything and all value together to put it in one giant interoperable system sounds like the best high score you can get. Yeah. So w- while you're saying that, I'm just thinking in my head like crypto is gamifying the world, uh, and you kind of you uh, you know aligning our virtual identity and like growing up inside of games in a gamified environment. Um, the, those same people are building this like gamified financial system, um, and it's just mind blowing seeing how it is going to have second and third order effects on society in general. Oh, yeah, man. It's, it's awesome. It's beautiful. And, and, you know, when you've been in it for a few years, then you start realizing what's happening and you start realizing all the other different creative ways. I call it creative crypto economic recombination, which is a really fun, long, elegant way of saying, you know, combining a bunch of incentive primitives together to, to mobilize people into a particular social order. So one of the those ways that we do that is through scent, which is how do we use people's inherent greed to want to bring value or to earn value in a network, but also to be on their best behavior and to create their best content. So it was like, what what amalgamation of incentive primitives and, and in what order and in what way? Because we've been playing around with the gamification and in like, you know, addictive feedback loops with social media for so long. But, you know, the core missing component for the sustainability of, a lot of, of all those games was greed. And a lot of the reasons that greed was usually abstracted away was either from regulatory complexity or just the fact that it just didn't make sense because you couldn't make things, you know, in micropayments because not everything you do online is worth something greater than a dollar. 
hell, half the time, it's really hard for you to buy an app that's 99 cent on your phone, but it's really easy for you to spend a dollar on a soda. You know, it all depends on like the context and when you're like exchanging value. So when you realize that and you realize that if you can get people to exchange value and incentives when they don't even realize and they're doing something they're already doing, like interacting on social media, liking a post, retweeting it, making a comment. If you can distill value out of that and put a number on it and then make like a cyclical feedback loop that acts like a flywheel to make sure someone else comes behind you to do the same, you can do some really, really cool shit. So that's exciting. And um, I think a lot of us are like kind of realizing these things. And that's why we're all talking about governance mechanisms and who talks to what and who feeds what and who does what and yada, yada, yada. Because really all we're thinking about is we've got the game pretty good and now we need to figure out how do we write the rule book in pen instead of pencil um, so that it can be referenced again later. And that's basically what we're going through in governance. Like, so, you know, you know gov uh, crypto was born out of a lack of governance and a lack of control around money. And it's only obviously gonna go through its ugliest uh, adolescence by dealing with those governance problems, shedding them, and then actually becoming an adult. So, I mean, this is something that I actually think is super interesting, but would love to kind of like dive into like, what do you see the current landscape of crypto governance today? And what's kind of your opinion on where it needs to be? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I've written, I probably in the past six months have written over 12,000 words on the subject um, through our blog, through our series of essays. But I, I wrote a, uh, a rather lengthy post called the Crypto Governance Manifesto, which sort of outlines uh, objectively from a high level view how crypto works organically when the government is operating smoothly. Because in a lot of instances, governance is something that can be observed and it's not something that can necessarily be fine, like fine tuned in real time because it's an emergent thing. So, uh, you know, in, in crypto, there exists this funnel of individuals that eventually, eventually feed into low level improvements to the protocol, which is what we all want. But in order to get there, there's a few needs. You need like speculators and capital allocators kind of at the top of the funnel, keeping things wide, keeping interest keeping new money flowing in and uh, new bodies to come in and try and test these uh, you know, systems and to potentially build on them and to be curious. You make your, your way down to the second level of the funnel, which is consists of foundations, cooperatives, and enterprises who are all fixated on you know, building and maintaining the general commons and deriving tools so they can create new efficiencies um, for these systems. Um, but also they serve a very important role of using funds that are garnered from the individuals in the funnel above it, from the capital allocators and speculators, as a means to educate this middle base in this funnel. This is your low-level technical engineers. These are your crypto economic mechanism designers, uh, your, you know, your technical crypto operations folks, all those folks. And then eventually it falls down to the very lowest level, which is just your low-level cryptography, low-level developers. And they're the ones that are going to make the determination of what stuff makes sense, what stuff's efficient, what stuff technological logically should be embedded, what sort of extendability, you know, your chain will have, and they're going to make those choices. But obviously the governance started at the top of the funnel and it works its way in based on the needs of the individuals that come in. So when you look at it from that way, you realize there's really not much you can change. All you can do is change the speculators, change how they operate. You can change the fun, you can change the foundation, change how they operate. And you can change the low level developers and change how they look at the folks above them in the funnel. But you cannot actually reach in and change governance. You can only change the, the how the participants occupy themselves as agents. And so, uh, we, you know, we move further into explaining this uh, phenomenon 
uh, in another post that we followed up called the, uh, the, the Emergence of like governance, something like that, I believe. Uh, it's also all on the Momentum blog, on Momentum.org, and you can see it there. But he talked about Bitcoin as like, as a spectrum, Bitcoin being more conservative. So think of like left or right, Bitcoin's far left conservative, middle, centrist, moderate, Zcash, progressive, liberals, far right, Ethereum. So basically as companies and firms protocols like emerge through these different social processes and as these different functionaries come online, it actually changes where you fall on this political spectrum. So if you're newer and you start off on day one saying, we're going to have a founder's reward, we're going to, we're going to put stuff in the commons, we're going, to, we're going to, as soon as we can, we're going to start building a foundation, and, we're, and then from there, we're going to slowly let power go. You end up like Zcash, you end up moderately in the middle. You eventually want to be progressive, but because of how your system was created, you kind of start in the middle. Then you have Ethereum, which came out of the woodworks of, and the ethos of uh Vitalik not having what he wanted, to, you know, building on top of MasterCoin, getting, you know, just not completely disillusioned, but turned off from the fact that he couldn't build the cool ideas that he wanted to on top of Bitcoin. And so he strived and all the other founders of Ethereum for a more open ecosystem. Uh, you know, and, and either some of them came with Bitcoin-like ideals and Bitcoin bags already, uh, or they came in as fresh idealists that just really loved what Vitalik was doing. Either way, they were the more progressive of those in the Bitcoin space, uh, and therefore Ethereum. Ethereum has evolved emergently into its current, you know, very progressive independent stance. Now, Bitcoin is just weird anomaly because it was launched with, you know, no core, you know, direction, you know, randomly from the reading list. And then slowly over time, it was amalgamated, more developers that got interested and started building on it, Hal Finney, uh, you know, Gavin Andres and all, you know, all your usual suspects. Um, but it was launched on the premise of Multiple implementations would be a menace to the network. That's a quote by Satoshi. Uh, you know, another reference client would, you know, would basically be a bother because it would then uh, uh, be an adversarial conditions against the main client for, you know, for consensus uh, tolerance. So, you know, if you find a fault, who's at fault? Is it is it the C++ reference implementation or the one that you re-implemented in the XYZ language? And so it started with this very limited pool of developers. And every developer pool, as it turns out, has its own political spectrum, emergent, just like crypto. So C++, very conservative people. They come from a world where every kilobyte counts. They come from the world of, we want code written like this, like that. It's a very structured formality. We come from enterprise. We come from building software. And it had to be for profit because the big VC world didn't exist in throwing money down your, money down your pants after the dot-com boom. So you actually had to do something like sizable. Uh, and, and that's where that ethos derived from. And then, you know, uh, so that's where Bitcoin was until 2016, until the launch of Bitcoin, which was uh, uh, another full node reference implementation that was re-implemented all of Bitcoin in a Node.js. The only ones who had previously made that attempt was BTCD, but it wasn't a proper full node all the way yet. It didn't have Git block template implemented. You couldn't necessarily mine it on mainnet. Bitcoin came out of nowhere. You could mine it on main. You, they, it mined its first block on mainnet. You can Google it. And it was the first one to distill that you could create something that was just as consensus aware as a reference implementation, but now you have multi-client support. So now you have the uh, ethos and the um, uh, uh, nature of the Node.js developers, front-end web developers. We build things quick, we build things fast. We don't necessarily have to worry about you know, memory allocation efficiency because everybody's got eight to 16 gigs around. So they think differently. And then, you know, and so because of that, Bitcoin itself basically pigeonholed itself for quite a while into this very conservative form because it 
It was a club that no one else could get in. And it was because no one else could become a low-level subject matter expert because no one wants to look at fucking C++ all day. Um, and then that obviously changed with Ethereum uh, with its mini implementations now, 7 plus with ETH 2.0, but it came out of the gate with Parity and Geth, which was written in Go. Um, Parity, which, you know, was written in Rust. Uh, someone that, you know, was immediately started working on uh, the original implementation, the, the Pi EVM, you know, that was, that was, that was Python. Um, you know, they had folks immediately starting writing stuff in like JS, like Web3 libraries. And so the developer pool grew rather quickly because they weren't dumb and came out of the gate with multi-client support. But they could do that because of the conditions that that system was in before it was created uh, because of the participants. So, you know, that's just, that, that's how, that's literally how governance works. Um, and then I wrote, we have another post, there's another 4,000 words we just put out a couple days ago called the year of the DAO comeback which talks about how do you uh, look at governance when you have things like DAOs now that play a major outsized influential role in, into the future of uh, cryptocurrencies. And then there's the, if we're gonna operate Ethereum or another asset with other you know, assets like EOS or Tron, what does the lateral complexity look like when, each, when these other public chain systems are now dependent on each other? So then we have outsized influences in other groups that might be really dependent on some layer two functionality in Ethereum that don't want it to change or be augmented by something, say, like state rent. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a complex piece. It's something that needs to be looked at uh, delicately. Um, but you also have to look at, like, the game theoretic interest in any ulterior motives between these different systems and understand the core developers and how they will eventually create the culture that surrounds your cryptocurrency. Steven, that was an absolutely crazy lesson in crypto. I feel like that was, like, a, our, the first idea of, like, crypto... Uh... What's the word? Anthropology. That was just like dissecting the history. Well, I, well, I, well, well, I've been in here like seven years now, so consider that my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask about like how you think that these uh, people, these subsets of people that make up governance in these communities that make up, mm -hmm. you know, political alignments around networks. How do you think this is going to change mm -hmm. when, you know, a, m a more significant portion of the global population starts to consider them as like a crypto person, right? So we all believe that, you know, yeah. institutional money is coming, global adoptions coming. How do you see the trajectory of these various uh, political groups and the change, the changes of future governance as, you know, as the crypto world like progresses? Uh, basically, like yeah, as these different interdependent groups that are all kind of fixated on improving this commons as they more further formalize their processes as they make them more programmatic they will make them more efficient and what we'll see is the same thing that happened um, during the dot-com period you know we had all these low-level dns experts folks that understood very intimately on how the internet web 1.0 worked and how it eventually scale into other versions of the web 2.0 3.0 etc and, uh, you know, as the Internet became a commonplace and, you know, part of the normal vernacular of everyone and everyone was just online, you know, the uh, people stopped saying WWW, the Internet, early Internet entrepreneurs, engineers and architects, they didn't lose importance, but they just sort of fell to the to the, you know, the foreground. Um, you know, they didn't necessarily lose importance. Um, but they were just relied on less and less because the infrastructure itself just did what the hell it needed to do. TCIP sent those packets, um, you know, folk, things routed around, the ISPs were doing their thing. Like, there was no real reason to complain. It's just as if we had infinite scalability on all cryptocurrencies and it worked. 
And then on top of that, um, we had no worries about non-custodial, you know, like trade-offs and risks. Things would just go and they would just work. And we would never really think that much about it until either one, we wanted to improve the system and upgrade it to, the, to its 2.0 version or something breaks. Um, so what's gonna happen is as these systems get more fluid, dynamic and sustainable, um, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to loosen up the reins a little bit uh, on those on these developers that are maintaining the system. And they'll kind of take more of the formal role as like educators because the form is eventually automation. And so as more and more people adopt crypto, that doesn't mean more and more people are necessarily gonna come in and be a major portion of its governance and influence because they're still going to need to find their way into these programmatic and fluid organizations and you know setups that I just described. And, but they're gonna have to show that they can join and be a fluid integral part of those systems. So uh, basically what you'll see is like the emergence of specialized subject matter experts that handle certain parts of crypto and then slowly over time, they'll serve as educators that will onboard more and more and more, uh, you know, common folks, folks outside of our industry, um, you know, and, until things are great. Like, you know, we have monetary policy, we have the Federal Reserve, you know, we've got, you know, uh, 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 you know our, our federal departments that handle all of our finance. They handle things in relation to money. Only when money is going bad do people say, eh, what are those people doing at those banks? They're fucking up. Um, but otherwise, we don't bother them. And so I think it'll be a lot like that. Uh, that as long as things are going well and we have all of our ducks in order uh, and everything's going well, no one's really going to bother us too much um, because we're matured to this point. You, you kind of hear the mumblings of that in the news when the banks and the SEC and folks start saying things like self-regulate, 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 you know, form, form these coalitions, these working groups, da, 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 da. what they're really saying is we're out, of our, we're out of our league here, we're out of our pay grade, you guys seem like you got it, but we want you to formally make things more fluid so that we feel more comfortable sitting to the back. And that's literally what's happening. And we're getting there. And I would say that crypto is in firmly, confidently in its adolescence now. It's like 15, 16 years old. It's, you know, it's just got its learner's permit. Sometimes you can take the car out alone on the weekends. You know, we just got layer two. That's dope. We're feeling good. Um, and then, you know, that's going to continue to mature. But the, the subject matter experts that can actually dictate how these, these ecosystems will, will evolve, is, is, is they're not going to grow that fast. Um, so you're going to have a lot of folks sitting on the outside listening in and learning. And then we'll have a long 10-year period of education until eventually like crypto is just the mainstay of the field. And then the next thing takes over. And then we have this whole weather slew of, you know, this, this is just how things mature over time. And, and thankfully for myself, you know, I was born in 1990. I got to I got to live through, you know, the bump of the internet and that becoming a main point and computers being in every classroom and everyone needing to be on the internet and da 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 da. And so, you know, that whole long period has to happen for crypto, and that's what's basically been happening. Um, and when once it's done, it's it's just going to mean a lot more education. So, going into more specific details, how do you feel about Ethereum governance in its current form? Because uh, Ethereum, especially during this bear market, and especially yeah. when so many decisions have yeah. been made, are you paying attention to Ethereum governance? And how would you rate it on a, like a scale of one to ten? Yeah, of course. So, um, in all the writings that I uh, referenced just a few minutes ago, I, I use uh, Ethereum as a central point of discussion for all of those, only because it's the one kind of at the forefront having these conversations. So, from a standpoint of are we having hard conversations about governance when everyone else should be having hard conversations about governance because crypto was created from a lack of good governance? 
Yes. So if we're doing that, are we already doing a thousand times better than the ones that aren't? Yes. So in that regard, as long as we're still maintaining civil discourse, talking about governance and the way how all these things interplay, and we're all, all you know, confiding in each other, doing things like appropriate audits, trying to set up these appropriate, you know, programmatic procedures to make governance more fluid. Um, I think we're doing well. Uh, is it going to be a little bit ugly? Yeah, it's like growing your hair out, you know? Uh, you know, before he gets to a certain point, it just looks ugly no matter, no matter which way you toss and turn it until you get a haircut or it just grows out a little bit longer. And so, you know, for us, you know, we, we still, we still got a mullet in the back. It's a little ugly. It's a party up front though. If you look at the prices. Um, but you know, once we kind of like clean up a little bit more, um, and, and, and uh, kind of formalize a little bit more procedures, I think we're going to be on a good track. And then that's kind of what I tried to, uh, notate in our most recent writings, um, you know, talking about. Malik Dow, MakerDAO, Aragon, projects that are trending towards like programmatic and fluid and are actually providing like a lot of the value to the space. Kind of interesting here. Uh, you know, I definitely am a lot more on the governance, at least for Bitcoin, is a bad thing. And we want it to just be as socially scalable as possible and, you know, not have a whole lot of fiddling. But it's just a completely different mindset to how Ethereum is being developed and how oh, no. the people see, that are in see, it. But Bitcoin, Bitcoin does have governance. And remember, it's an emergent thing. Bitcoin has it. They might not be aware of how those things work, but, but it's definitely there. Uh, okay. The only difference is that it's mostly been centralized uh, up until this point because only those that have a seat at that table of that discussion of, with deep technical merit are those with that are contributors with commit to the core reference implementation, but because that's kind of the culture that still surrounds that. Um, you know, that was one that I was very deeply a part of. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of 2014 uh, trying to learn the ins and outs of low level, you know, PAL development, consensus mechanisms, how it works, because it was just a lot to just dive into the C++ code and not really know everything that was going on. So I spent a lot of time on NRC on like these crypto wizards, you know, chats and stuff, hanging out, trying to get someone to like teach me some things, you know, and I ultimately did not find anyone who's willing to teach me anything. And so I started working on proof of stake and ideas and concepts around that uh, in, in early 2014. Uh, and so that was really cool and all. And but if I was to go to like a Bitcoin forum or Bitcoin talk that are done, I was like, hey, guys, like I want to learn about this. But also in the respect of, I've been learning about this proof of stake thing, guys. Um, you know, hey, I think there might be something on this. Can someone maybe educate me where I might be wrong? And then, you know, I got banned from Bitcoin talk uh, along with a few other people. I think maybe even Vitalik himself. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of the folks that were training towards proof of stake and things like that and just kind of trying to generally learn and push the face forward got pushed out. Uh, and so we were, it was like, okay, it kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And it wasn't until later, until 2016-ish, that we started working on uh, Bitcoin, which was the next alternative re-implementation of Bitcoin in Node.js that we actually released while I was working there. And it was only at that time, hanging out with the creator, JJ, who is now the creator of Handshake as well, um, actually just sit down there and tell me shit, like hard stuff that you never would get. You never would have learned from a Medium post or a random article or from like reading, you know, there's so many gotchas. And for a while, it almost felt like that's the way they liked it. Is that they liked that there was this like kind of 
cult of intellectual curiosity where you would only permit you in and provide you this these you know gotchas and things of that nature that you need to actually be a subject matter expert in developing these systems but only if you fit in only if you fit this bill of like autistic white male programmer in his 20s to like mid 30s to early 40s would we permit you into this like cult of intellect and that's what i found and that's what annoyed me also being a minority in the space too um, but for the most part, I'm kind of white passing depending on the time of the year. Um, but it doesn't work online uh, when folks like know who you are and you're open and you're not working from a pseudonym. I've never been an individual focused on like being like pseudonymous or like worried about my privacy. I've always just been at Stephen Mackey or at Mackey. I'm just myself. And it's also re it also was really hard for those people that were very pseudo anonymous or were seeking to be anonymous to develop friendships and closeness and to educate someone who did not have that same ideal for worry that their information or their identity might get out. So when you've seen it from that perspective, you realize why Bitcoin doesn't, isn't aware of its governance because no one has conversations about it because all the folks that would talk about it leave. Interesting. I mean, like, uh, I kind of disagree with your take on it. Um, and personally, you know, I did not try to develop or learn how to develop, but it does look as though uh, there are a lot of education efforts today um, to bring oh, it's a lot of change in the past uh, about two years since the the start of the run up of the bull run after the second happening, uh, and then after Bitcoin and everything went out, when more developers came on board, we had we actually had one of the first major Bitcoin hackathons. Um, uh, a Bitcoin for your thoughts, Bitcoin for your thoughts in 2017. Uh, no, 20 yeah 2017. Um, and then we had over like 250 developers come on and then the weekend actually build stuff on top of Bitcoin because the learning curve for the C++ variant is just way too high and you can't build something in two days. But you could do that with a series of boilerplate apps and Node.js. And so, you know, I watched that like happen and I've seen it. And now you've seen a resurgence because folks were like, oh shit, our infrastructure needs a lot of work. Now we're worth all this money. We need to use some of this newfound liquidity and capital to, 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 to double down on education. So if you look at it from a window of the past year and a half, you might have a skewed perspective over where things are trending. But if you've been there since late 2012, you know that it's been a really long period of adjustments to even get to that point. Yeah, I mean, again, like I totally understand that kind of growth trajectory. And generally speaking, you know, Satoshi went out to the cypherpunks who kind of fit that, uh, that definition and characterization that you illustrated at the beginning, right? So very, very conservative. Big thinking, trying to uh, you know take down the banks, and that ethos is still very strong within Bitcoin. Um, I do kind of like you know again, just looking at you know Bitcoin's governance. I feel like it's very much you know run the code, and you know you can argue whether or not people are running the code, and you know people have the ability to audit it and that kind of stuff, and how much trust they're putting into different aspects. But you know ultimately, like at least in my mind, I don't buy like this idea of like you know. I mean, Moloch DAO is very interesting. There's a lot of stuff that's very interesting, but I just don't really buy this idea of, you know, let's get as many people as possible to talk about this, like, baseline foundational thing. Um, and it sounds like you, you don't necessarily think that that's how it's going to scale out into the long term. Um, you did say that, you know, as people come in, you know, most people don't care unless things are going wrong. But it, it does seem like you think a lot more people should be involved with making decisions. Yeah, of course. But see, I guess the I guess the kind of the, the, the question lies in what decisions and 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 what and, and how do we quantify when those non technical individuals have enough information 
to actually make a competent decision? And has it been distilled down enough or are they gonna fall to the cult of personality that we've seen with things like BSV where folks you know, pretend like they know a lot about how all this stuff works and then garner this following where folks think that they, this person maintains this technical authority and listens to them anyway. So you, even if you had quote unquote perfect information and you, you could provide that to consumers, most of the time consumers will need an incentive. So you're gonna need an incentive for them to actually listen and to pay attention and to vote with their hand. Because I don't know if you've ever used scent, but there's a, there's a voting period that happens after a post ends, it's 24 hours where you go through and sort out the different responses, uses a pairwise comparison. And we break up those pairwise comparisons so the individuals don't just inherently just go by and just clicking on whatever they want. And they're only, they're only seated a fixed number of responses because people only have so much attention. So if you provided me perfect information and you said, we're gonna find on this, this electoral college of, 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 of competent con generalized consumers to take a look at this information and to say yay or nay, there will be a portion of those when that come to the really hard questions because you're now still putting authority into their hands and that's still a hard thing, even if they have all the information presented in front of them. Again, with no incentive and you want them to make a choice. So they're gonna to wanna to make the best choice because they don't want to make all their constituents and all the other normal folks upset. So what are they gonna do? They're probably going to lean on the perspective or the choices of whoever they feel like has the most technical authority whose ethos they align with the most. You know, for instance, it's like, do we listen to what Charles Hoskinson says about the Ethereum roadmap, or do we listen to Vitalik, both technical individuals, but one might have an ethos and a persona that I idealize more than the other. So even if one has the better technical argument, I might still fall over on this cold personality. So it's like, there's these really, really hard problems um, that come along with voting. And there's also like, how do you create the same democracy that's present in the real world with the electoral college, accountability, laws, and make it a part of the Ethereum or any governance ecosystem that doesn't just devolve into a cartel-esque shareholder vote? Um, because that's what it really is for a lot of those systems. Uh, and that's why a lot of crypto is best observed instead of just trying to implement some new voting-like system in order to find a quorum because every time you try and create create or implement and integrate some quorum-based voting mechanism, it, it introduces all these bags of worms and the incentives to keep folks to continue to adhere to those voting rules. Like the Dash DAO thing, that made, that made a lot of sense back in the day when they came up with it, when they were like, how do we pump the fact that we can sustain Dash? Let's put this money in this fucking thing and then vote when folks are gonna spend it. And then now what does that devolve into? When was the last time you heard anything about Dash? Last I heard Dash was hitting up my friend JJ asking them to help scale their chain back in 2016 because they couldn't, because it was broken just like Bitcoin was at the time. Uh, because it wasn't scaling, quote unquote, because that was the ethos. Uh, the TPS weren't high enough. Or, you know, the, the database is gonna get clogged. Too much state bloat, da 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 da. Like, I don't know, man. These are just, these are, these are inherently very hard decisions and they're very taxing mentally. So you also had to have a, a, a method to be able to rotate out these, these, these experts too, because this shit's hard and it's very tiring. And so I actually don't, I'm actually embarrassed on the, on the idea that we'll come up with a system anytime soon that does not have some formal, uh, I, I hate to say it without opening up a bag of like technical, just like dark and buzzwords, but until there is some, you know, objective, 
verifiable truth or decision maker that says like AI based, da, 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 which is like, which can act as like a deciding vote, you know, between like say two, two groups, one says yes, one says no, it's 50-50. We need someone, you know, objectively to come in and say which of those is the right answer. When we start trending towards those directions, uh, uh, it's gonna start getting better. But until then, we're every time we, we go to introduce a new person into a system, it adds complexity. There's this really awesome book that will make you laugh that is an incredible educa educational text on how systems work. It's called the Systems Bible. You can buy it on Amazon. And it talks about all the gotchas when it comes to like systems engineering and like, you know, a project that's a year behind that brings on 10 new people, you know, to make a project get done in six months gets two years behind, you know, like common gotchas where you're just like, look, we want to do this, but because of the inherent nation of coordination failure, this is actually what will happen. And then you can read through that and kind of basically get a history of all the times we've tried to coordinate systems and fucked it up and the ways that we solved them. And so a lot of this is to just look at history. And in history, we have constantly tried to do this. We, you know, move from a nature of like hunter gatherer individuals that moved into towns and cities that dictated rules that became like kingdoms that eventually became statehoods, which became federal governments, which, you know, are, are you know, controlling individual states and individual states have individual agents with different outside power and influence which doesn't also count the businesses entities, which also act as formal mini governments that also have outside influence and dictation on the way policy goes and da, da, da. It's just been this thing that just compounds, it gets more complex. And now we have still have all that, but now we have like, you know, a lot of these decisions being made on computers. So all those other folks that got us there, the, the churches, the religions, the businesses, the da, 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 they're all still part of the decision-making. Even if we make it programmatic, there is still the social impact of all the other folks that got us here that are going to need to have a say. And I don't, I don't think there is one right way to do that. So of all the projects that are currently in this space, what projects and, or, or what on, on chain projects or projects that are changed themselves, what, what do you see people getting right here? Like, do you like the way that MakerDAO is set up and, and organize their system? Or do you have criticisms about that? Like what projects uh, do you think will be in existence in for into the indefinite future because of the way that they've set themselves up today? Yep. 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 So for right now, the projects that I'm most bullish on are going to have a couple factors. One, they're going to have capital and they're going to have liquidity and they're going to have talent. Um, but also like they're going to have near term scalability. So in order to stay relevant long enough to figure out long term scalability. So what I mean by that is the folks that are entrenching themselves and entering this entrepreneurial window and scaling themselves on layer two, say like Spank Chain, um, like Scent with our layer two state channels, um, folks like MakerDAO, uh, which 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 works through it's like multiple like three like a three token model using ETH Maker and uh, Dai, um, you know things like Aragon. Uh, those things are uh, like generally like very like interesting. And they're doing they're doing really well because they're scaling now and they're doing the thing that they're supposed to do now. And therefore they're gonna remain a seat at the table and they're gonna be decision makers on how things like continue to go forward, which entrenches that capability and, that, and, and empowers them even more because of that entrepreneurial window in which they entered. And so those that can build things now and have users now, and those users keep coming back uh, just because the value capture system is that good, they will stay around like MakerDAO, folks will stay around because they've entered the CDP or they've made money on DAI by leveraging and like, you know, like doubling down on ETH and making money. So they're going to stick around the ecosystem. 
whether or not they formulated some sort of like collaborative organization through like Aragon, and now they're fixed to this like network effect. Whether it's just they just they love the coordination of like working with like the Malik DAO or da 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 da, and like helping to coordinate grants and to like you know improve the commons and to like spin out money. So basically, folks are uh, specializing in the things that they can do well that work now, and um, you know they're going to continue to do to do better. And as we iterate on the things that are working now, we'll, that will lead to the infrastructure of the future. And then more businesses and firms and services will arise from those additional components that we've built because of all of our lessons learned. And the cycle continues. Um, my friend Danny Grant from, uh, uh, what, what firm was that? Uh, USV in New York. Um, she wrote a post uh, on their blog about kind of like infrastructure, um, like applications come before infrastructure, which kind of leads uses CryptoKitties as a leading example, where it's like, cool, we had a cool breakout app like CryptoKitties. That was dope. Lots of on-chain transactions. Everything, everybody learned about MetaMask, da 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 digital scarcity, non-fungible tokens, insert jargon buzzword here. But then it got to, oh shit, now the chain's all clogged up. Man, this shit doesn't work. Everybody's got to learn about gas fees. Man, everyone learned that they fucking hate gas fees. This shit sucks. It's so dynamic. I can't do the same thing every day. And then what do we learn? We need layer two scalability solutions. We needed to limit the types of on-chain transactions that we make. There's not everything needed to be on the on-chain state. Da -da 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 -da. Basically, it's like, you know, all these lessons learned. They just compound and they allow us to build more powerful and sustainable ecosystems. And not only that, those that have powerful, sustainable ecosystems now that are building sensibly gain green greater and greater efficiency. So, you know, there's a handful of projects that are doing well now. I just listed some, you know, on Ethereum, but projects that are gonna stem from uh, lightning that are gonna stem from privacy enabling technologies like Zcash, et cetera, they're gonna come along too. And, and those early, early use cases are gonna make a lot of damn sense. And they're gonna have this niche group. And then from that niche group that is sticky, more use cases will evolve. So last question before we uh, wrap this up here. Uh, we are recording this on uh, crypto bull market day. Yeah, man. So <laughs> during this podcast, uh, Bitcoin just touched 5,000 mm -hmm. and oh, Ethereum yeah. just touched uh, 170. Where do you see this going in the next uh, one month, two months? Mm -hmm. And are we out of the bull market? Where, how, how bullish are you? Or excuse me, are we out of the bear market? Mm -hmm. All right. So... All right, time for some quick legal speak. Yeah. Um, as an investment, as oh, an that's investment, right, you're a fund manager. Uh, legal, <laughs> legal investment advisor with fiduciary duties uh -huh. to my LPs and of that nature. I cannot speak and or directly speculate on the types of assets that I think that you should buy, especially if they fall into a pool of security. But I can't dance around this question very easily. I do it all the time. So, <laughs> what I mean by that is, <laughs> it's part of the job. So. Uh, uh, in relation to like kind of like the general crypto markets now, we're seeing a boom because we had a we had a very long lull throughout 2018 where basically people were languishing the fact that oh we're in this bear market when it was like March <laughs> before the sentiment had, the prevailing sentiment had actually matched and was equally as negative. I would say that the the the, the sentiment and the overall bear market didn't really kick in until closer towards like July or August. Um, and, and even then it was like a major sell off that was mostly motivated by redemptions from some of the mega funds. Um, and I'm very familiar with a lot of the redemption schedules for some of the bigger firms like Printera and Polychain, et cetera. So I can go ahead and tell you confidently that a lot of those drawdowns were because of folks needing to like exit those positions uh, in order to, you know, rep rep provide funds back to their LPs. So that period happened, right? 
And then you don't re-enter large positions once you sold large positions in the first year, duh, especially because you're already having to pay taxes on all those capital gains. Um, but and at the same time, you don't want to like further make complexity for your administrators and um, your, you know, your auditors to like have all these movements. So obviously you would wait until the next tax year. So you can either like be taxed in a, you know, uh, on your new, on your new cost basis, give yourself time for the markets to cool down and to buy low again. Um, and, or um, then you would just uh, wait a little bit uh, and then, you know, wait until after like tax season or close to tax season is about to be over. When you know that everyone has exercised and sold down as much as their assets, they're down to the wire. They, they are, you know, they're like, like trying to remain solvent, solvent as they just paid like, you know, all the taxes on their uh, uh, gains or, you know, no taxes on their losses. So they're like, cool, now we're going to re-enter the market. That's exactly what's happening right now. Uh, it's like clockwork. Like anyone in the Valley you talk to any of these crypto fund managers, they would have said this was coming. Um, and, you know, myself, I was, I've, I've been tweeting since like late 2012. I was like, look, you guys are so fucking overly bearish. That just tells me that 2019 is going to be stupidly bullish and all you guys are going to be wrong. And so, you know, it, it's, 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 it's more so just like kind of, kind of just like following the trends. So the markets are making a, you know, a nice correction now, uh, but they've had some very heavy losses. Should, could we see a retracement from here? Uh, sure. Um, but so we, could we see further bullish movement? Yes. Is crypto down and out? Never. Um, and so, you know, really, it's just like, like riding these movements that are organically going to happen anyway. I always get a trip out of folks saying, this is it. This shit's dead. It's not coming back. Get out. What they're really saying is, uh, we want you to capitulate. We want you to give up and we want you to sell because you're afraid of being able to pay your taxes. We want to buy back lower and we want to make ridiculous IRR for all of our, uh, you know, cause funds aren't how much you made in a year. It's how much do you make month over month? What's your internal rate of return? So if I make 10% per month and we slowly ramp crypto back up, that looks way better than if we pump this shit up 2000% and then we let it fall again. And now we've had a shitty year. Now we can't, you know, make our tax uh, obligations. Now we're screwed and we're in a hole. So crypto will always follow these patterns. You just got to know where to look. It always amazes me how perfectly timed the four, uh, the four year having cycles are. With that being said, like, it's always like 327 days to 360 days out from it happening. You start seeing long ramp ups. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And on top of that, you later in the fact that's on U.S. political elections, um, stuff like that. It's pretty amazing. But, do but you, Yang Gang, Yang Yang, Gang Gang. Yeah, hey, let's. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we, before we end it, we got to talk about Yang. Personally, I'm oh, in man. the like vote for Bitcoin camp. Uh, I'm kind of over politics. Oh, that's not an but, option. I got a good, uh, I got you, a good Yang story. True. I got a good Yang story. I got a really good Yang story. Please. You want to hear it? This is why you're yes. here. Yes. This is why you're here. Oh, dudes. All right. So, all right. It's hilarious. Great. All right. So hear me out. Okay. So this was like June, July, July, July 23rd of uh, 2018. Uh, I was uh, DMing uh, on, the, on the computer and I was like reading some stuff about Andrew Yang. And, and, I, like, I, and, I, and I DMed him and I was like, hey, man, uh, I see you're really into this crypto stuff. Uh, I mean, it seems like it's pretty interesting. Have you ever checked out? block channel and i was like i like, I like a lot of your ideas because we talk about governance we talk about commoditization of like public infrastructure ubi all that cool stuff so basically i was just like hey man there's this there's this dude with like 10 11 000 followers on twitter that seems like a really nice guy and i'd heard about him and let me reach out to him so i sent him some articles and he was like yeah actually um 
he was like, you know, I'll check out some of that stuff. Da 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 da. Um, took a look at it, liked it, and so I was like, hey guy, hey man, hey man, like you know, you live in the Bay Area, uh, we should meet. And he was like, for sure, let's do it. So we got. I don't know if you're here in the Bay Area, if any of you guys, but we met up at Four Barrels Coffee here in, on the in the Mission. And uh, you know, he brought me a copy of his book, The War on Automation, which is available on Amazon. Really great book. Um, and he gave me a signed copy of it. It was great. He was like, you know, thanks for. Wait, you mean the War on Normal People? Yeah, the War on Normal People. And he was like, hey, you know, he was like, he signed this book for me. Uh, it said, you know, thanks for all you do to help make the world a better place. Let's try and make this change together. And you know, I really liked him. You know, we had obviously he was he came at me very politically politician-y guy, you know, talking about how he's like raising funds and things like that. But I'm a very personable person. I like to build a rapport. So, you know, after talking for a little, for a little while, I got him to open up. I was trying to see how he thinks, right? This is how I talk to founders. I try to like get in there with my intuition. See if you're a good or a bad person. Try and give you give me a give me a red flag. Give me a clue. Um, and so while I was trying to dig that out of him, you know, I was like, so tell me, tell me about your platform. Tell me about what you're trying to do. And he's like, you know, like uh, you know, Trump's screwing up a lot of stuff. Obviously, he said this a lot more elegantly. Um, uh, you know, I am fixated on a model of like universal basic income. I wrote a book called The War on Automation. Normal people. You know, I know what automation is gonna do to the middle class. I started a, a group called, you know, Venture for America to help, you know, create like VC and entrepreneurial growth for, you know, like American citizens, very similar to like our fundamentum. So we like really spoke on that level. And then, and I was like, oh, cool. And then I was like, but I was like, how, and again, I'm a mixed race individual. This is, this, this is, a, this, is an, this is an Asian man. And I'm, we're in San Francisco, an area with a lot of homogeny. And I just got real with him. I just leaned in and I was like, hey man, how are you? And I'm from the South. I'm from Georgia, South Carolina. I was like, how are you going to get all those conservatives to vote for you? And he was like, you know, you know what's polling really well. And I was like, what? He was like, Universal basic income, people get that, but it's a scary word. You know, it kind of reminds people of welfare. And I was like, go on. And he was like, so you know what word people really like? And I was like, what? He was like, freedom dividend. And I was like, I fucking love it. And he was like, yeah, it's great, right? And he was like, in Iowa, it's polling really well. People really like it. Da -da 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 -da. And I was like, hmm, okay. He gets it. And I lean in a little bit more. And, and you know, he's like, between you and me which is now it's not between him and I. So now you guys can understand who he is as a person more. He was like, he was like the easiest way you can get folks who are conservative who might not vote for me because of like my minority background is the only other obvious answer. It would be Trump again, or the smart, nice Asian guy that wants to give me a thousand dollars a month. And that's when I clapped my hands and I was like, you got it. You know exactly mm -hmm. who you're selling to. And I was like, and the, all the AI automation stuff is exactly what I need. And I was like, you got my vote. So I brought him on to, and so he was like, great, you know, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm running on this crypto platform too. I'm taking Bitcoin and stuff. And I was like, man, you're saying all the things I want to hear. And uh, he's like, and I was like, I can help you. I can give you an audience. Come on my podcast block channel, which is really big here in like Silicon Valley with a lot of these funds, a lot of these, you know, big, like kind of, kind of like tech guys. They love our stuff. I was like, come on, we'll find you an audience. He came on. It was great. Coin, uh, Coinbase wrote an article about Andrew Yang accepting crypto. All these crypto orgs started talking about Andrew Yang. He glew up. Now he's got 220,000 followers. He was on Joe Rogan, and now he's going to be at the Democratic you know, debates. That's fucking awesome. And on our show, too, he also told me that if he wins the election, and he promised me this, that I could have a party at the White House. So <laughs> I am very much Oh, I want you into Andrew. that party. I, so that's so my plan is to have a crypto Bitcoin carnivore slash everyone cookout on the white house lawn grilling steaks i feel like that's like the ultimate 
way to celebrate all the crazy ridiculousness of crypto is if we could all get together, us, Naraj, all the folks, and just like eat steaks on the White House lawn and celebrate that we have Andrew Yang as president. I would just be on cloud is nine. Is that a crazy pipe dream? No. It's, is that a crazy pipe possible. dream? Who knows? Who I mean, it could, it could be very possible, right? But at the same time, the way I look at it is, I, I love things where I have maximum upside, cap downside, right? I, I, I'm, I'm risk adverse. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a hedge fund. And it's how I think as a fund manager. The way I look at it, we get a guy that goes to Democratic conventions, very smart, very well-spoken, understands these concepts that we all talk about all the, all the time, UBI, da, 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 automation, crypto. And he's going to intelligently be able to talk about it on live TV to you know, his constituents, the folks that you know, are, relate with him and are smart and get him and his platform. And it's free advertisement for Bitcoin. The Democratic, you know, debates, you have them up there. He was, if you hear him on my show, he doesn't call it a theorem. He calls it ether. He, yeah, he knows he exactly nailed it. what he's talking about. So um, what I'm saying is, I'm like, you know, when you go out to these big debates, just drop the word blockchain, Bitcoin, and Ethereum. And let's just call it a day. Right. You know, like, yeah. uh, that's what I want. All he you know? has so, to say is. So worst case is, scenario, the world earns, learns. All he has to say is, like, I think the cryptocurrency industry deserves more clarity and regulation. And then, like, boom, a million dollars of donations. That's it. That's exactly. I mean, if not already, if not someone has already had that same idea, right? We're all game theorists and already has donated to him. You know, like the signaling is there. I wouldn't, wouldn't, I would be surprised if some, if some a crypto person hasn't already made a very substantial donation to his uh, campaign. Um, you know, it's different than like, uh, what was it, Ron Paul, right? Like he's cool and all, and like great with Bitcoiners and stuff, but he, he he's not going to get elected by Americans. You know, the typical American person. He's too, uh, he's too headstrong, right? He's too, he's too aggressive. Uh, Rand Paul, uh, nice guy, a uh, little bit different than his dad. Um, just you know, but not as, but honestly, in my opinion, not as sharp, uh, and so therefore, mm-hmm. you know, didn't really ever stand a chance. Andrew Yang, Democratic guy, first Asian guy running for president, similar signaling to like Obama, very smart, understands the current world, understands memes. Come on, like the writing's on the wall. All we need, all he needs, is our help. Mm-hmm. Understands memes, like it's a huge value prop. Yep. I am convinced that Bitcoin, Ether, crypto, it's all going to be mentioned and be part of the 2020 election cycle. Um, If crypto is pumping, it's unavoidable. Um, It's just becoming more and more entrenched in our lives. And if Andrew Yang wants to uh, help destroy dirty fiat and give me a thousand bucks a month to uh, buy Bitcoin with, I'm all right with it. I'm all right with it. Yeah, I know, right? I'm just going to set up a reincurring payment to whatever account he drops that in, and it's a reincurring buy to $1,000 on Coinbase. <laughs> like, thanks, Jang. And then every month on the first, we'll just see a nice pump, and it'll be good because everyone will do the same thing. And uh, <laughs> so it'll be great. Uh, you, you really think people are going to take $1,000 a month to start paying off their credit cards? No. If they were going to do that, they would have done it in discretionary income a long time ago. They're going to try and set themselves up for, shit, I got $1,000 a month. Let me see how I can put this to work. You're going to see a lot of side hustles mm-hmm. come out of the woodwork. And that's kind of what he wants. He wants Absolutely. folks to, like, you know, mm-hmm. be creative, be emboldened economically. And I think that's one way to get there. Totally. Steven, we got to wrap this up. This is our longest podcast ever. But we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah. That was just a ton of good information. And I really appreciate your energy and your background and your perspective. I don't think we could have gotten that from from anyone else. So, Thank you for your time, sir. Yeah, man. Hey, man. No, no problem. Thanks a lot. And if you ever need me to just come run my mouth about any myriad of topics in relation to crypto, you just let me know. I'll happily do it. Oh, yeah. When, when uh, Yang gets elected into uh, the Democratic nominee, we'll, uh, we'll do this uh, reprise. 
Hell yeah. All right, man. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll all celebrate and then we'll we'll follow up with uh steaks <laughs> on the White House lawn. It'll be a good time. Hey, I hope yeah, we're definitely Absolutely. invited to that, right? Yeah, I want in. I want in for sure. Oh yeah, most definitely. You guys you guys are here, you guys are on the podcast, so pretty much in the word will get out through you guys. So uh, you guys are invited. <laughs> all right, rock and roll, baby. All right. Make sure Yang's cool with this. All right, guys. Oh yeah. Hey, <laughs> Steven. <laughs> Steven, really quick, where can people find you? Who do you want to hear from? All that good stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Steven underscore Mackie, M-C-K-I-E is how my last name is spelled. You can find me on Scent, too, Scent.co at, at Mackie, M-C-K-I-E. Um, or if you are a, you know, an entrepreneur, if you are a investor, or if you are a, uh, you know, just a builder, someone curious you want to shoot me an email to our funds for any any random reason whatever it may be i've got some really cool imbalance of random opportunities in the past uh that's just mackie at momentum.org uh shoot me an email uh, otherwise you can just find me on the web i'm a moderator on our ethereum and rzec too so i'm kind of all over the place awesome thank you much steven if you guys want to follow the podcast you can follow the pod at pov crypto pod you can find me on twitter at trustless state Twit Christian. Thanks for coming on the show again, Stephen. It was a fun conversation and uh, fun to kind of debate a little bit there. Uh, I definitely, uh, of course, I take it a little bit more online with Twitter now that we're acquainted here. Um, but you of can course. find me on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. And again, I had a lot of fun during this show. So thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, fellas. I'm going to get out here and hit these mean streets of crypto in San Francisco and try to get this come up. So you guys be well. I'll talk to you soon. All right, cheers. All right, bye, Steven. Later, guys.